I'm Alex Wong, and the Wong Takes start now. What's up? It is Tuesday, October 10th. October 17th, excuse me, 2017. Wow, I messed up already. Nah, but reminder, the NBA starts tonight. Celtics and Cavs going at it right now. Rockets and Warriors later tonight. Both games on TNT. We'll talk a little bit more about that later, but why don't we get to it on the long takes. Number one, the U.S. misses the World Cup. On last Tuesday, they lost to Trinidad and Tobago. That combined with a Panama win over Costa Rica and a Honduras win over Mexico means the U.S. finished fifth in World Cup qualifying standings and therefore missed the World Cup. Man, I was so confident they were going to make it last Tuesday because all they had to do was not lose to Trinidad and Tobago, not have Panama beat Costa Rica, and not have Honduras win over Mexico. Any draws, losses, anything else, they would have made it. But none of those happened, and this results in the first time the U.S. missing the World Cup since 1986. They had actually made seven straight, and not many nations had done that. And wow, they're missing the World Cup. You're going to lose a lot of the star power that you could have had, and I think the entire U.S. soccer system needs to look themselves in the mirror and to quote Taylor Twellman that night on SportsCenter, he asked, what are we doing? Because the U.S. for years has been saying, we want to compete with Colombia, we want to compete with Argentina, we want to compete even with the European powers like Portugal or the Netherlands, who are not as much of a power but more on our level. And they can't compete with these major soccer countries if they can't escape CONCACAF qualifying, if they can't escape Northern, or they can't escape North American qualifying, And Trinidad and Tobago was actually winless in their last nine games. So the U.S. lost to Trinidad, even though it was on the road. They lost to a team that hadn't won nine games in in qualifying and had nothing to play for. So what are you doing if you can't beat them? But the pressure is to get to the World Cup or not get to the World Cup. Now, they, they also didn't get any help from other teams, but that's beyond this point if you can't handle your own business. So the U.S. has 300 million people, and they spend millions of millions, even billion dollars on soccer. So what happened? Why didn't they make the World Cup? And it's not just this last game. It's the whole, the whole qualifying they were inconsistent. They lost two games at home, which rarely happens. They barely were able to salvage ties or a tie in Honduras, and they had trouble winning games on the road, which they always have. But you should beat Trinidad. So the start of this change, maybe to make the U.S. better, started on Friday. The coach, Bruce Arena, resigned because he was specifically brought on to get the U.S. to the World Cup, and that clearly didn't happen. So he's gone. And Sunil Gulati, who's the president of the U.S. Soccer Federation, now I'm not the biggest soccer buff. I don't follow the team wherever they go. I follow them for qualifying, of course, in a lot of the big games. But... Just from an outsider's perspective, shouldn't he go? Because systemic change in your system doesn't occur unless you have someone hiring people to succeed. And clearly with the hires of Jurgen Klinsmann and Bruce Arena, he hasn't been able to get the job done. So I don't know if that's immediately or do we need to see more. I don't know if we need to see more because this should be a big enough alarm bell. But nonetheless, something should change at the top and he might be the person who has to go. Also, something is very, very wrong with the youth academy. Because a lot of countries, in a lot of countries... You have kids that are being recruited when they're like two or three year olds if they're really good. And that way you can scoop up the talent early and develop it early. But with the U.S., you have to go through college. And 
that's holding people back from joining the professional leagues. Because like Christian Pulisic, who is the greatest U.S. soccer player in a while, he actually had to go to Europe in in order to develop his skills, and he had to leave the U.S. at 16. So if you're having people having to leave if they're really good talent, that that doesn't work to develop a bunch of really good talent. And you need to have more dedicated academies instead of having kids have to go to college. I know that sounds blasphemous, but the NBA did that for years where they had people like LeBron James and Kobe Bryant coming out and developing their skills earlier on. And look what happened to them. They're still playing, or Kobe retired after an illustrious 20-year career, and LeBron is still tearing up the league. And also, another issue in the U.S., Soccer is a sport for rich people in the U.S., pretty much. Whereas in other countries where soccer is one of the biggest sports they have, where you're just going into the streets looking for kids, trying to find talent, the U.S., these kids have to come to the soccer groups. The soccer groups don't go to them. So that's a problem when you don't have all that talent. You don't know if you have the next Landon Donovan or the next Christian Pulisic in your in your youth systems because you don't actively scope out those kids because soccer... At the end of the day, it comes down to soccer is not a huge priority in the United States. When What will it take for America to truly care about soccer? Is it going to have to be the growth of the domestic league, the MLS, that keeps, that keeps growing on? Or is it going to have to be some sort of something happens to one of the major sports in the U.S., like football, if some major study comes out and finally that turns people off to football, that's going to leave a void in the U.S. sports culture and you're going to have to have soccer to fill that gap? What's going to need to happen? Are you going to have to change the rules in the, in the MLS? To have to make the game more accessible to American sports fans, like get rid of draws. I know that sounds crazy, but it, that might have to be it. But either way, and speaking of the MLS, this loss also is a significant blow to them because they lose some of their legitimacy because the growth of the MLS is built on the U.S. fans wanting it. Like you can't expand unless you have cities that are willing to put in the money and the resources and have a dedicated enough fan base that you're going to have people consistently coming out and willing to support the team. And also, I don't know if we're going to we're in the middle of it right now and I'm not really sure how they work, but this might be a bubble, an MLS bubble, kind of like a real estate bubble where you have immense growth like the MLS is in right now. They're in a huge upward trend. They want to grow to 30, 32 teams and they're at like 22 right now. But if you have this coming, and maybe in a few years, if the U.S. doesn't get any better, you're going to see this gigantic loss of fan base as maybe, this is, is this a fad? Has the fad of soccer in the U.S. passed? And now MLS might go bankrupt because you have all these cities and you can't fill stadiums, and that, that would be a huge issue for them. So hopefully the failure of the U.S. not making the World Cup will open some eyes and hopefully will lead to change, even though... Bruce Arena said the U.S. doesn't really need any major changes. Sunil Gulati said the U.S. doesn't need any major changes. Hopefully you can develop teams. Like, we've started to see some of that. Like, the Philadelphia Union and MLS team opened up a dedicated facility and more more youth academies. But unless you see that systemic change with the U- U.S. Uh, U.S. Soccer Federation, MLS, even the other domestic leagues, maybe try to produce more uniformity or mirror it more like a European system or your promotion or relegation. That's not the American way, but either you're going to have to fully adopt the European ideals of, of hunt players out, don't make them go to school, just get them to develop the best, to be the best soccer players that can be, or you're going to have to do something to make it better for the American fans to make sure you have a developed domestic market, whether it be change the game or make it more accessible to U.S. fans.
So that was my rant about the USMNT. Hopefully they can qualify for the World Cup in the future, but you're going to have to find better players if you want to do that. Okay, moving on to topic number two. We're going to update the MLB postseason. The ALCS, the Astros versus the Yankees. This has been an exciting series so far, at least the first few games were. The Astros won both of them 2-1 to one behind brilliant pitching performances from Dallas Keuchel, who went seven innings of no-run ball, and their closer, Ken Giles, who went one and two-thirds innings pitch. So if you can save your bullpen in the playoffs, that's insane. The Astros starters in the first two games actually went 16 combined innings, which is crucial not only for this series. If they go on to win this series, in the World Series, you see starters. We've seen this in the uh, NLDS and the ALDS as well, where starters go out in like the third inning after they've given up maybe just two runs and are in a jam and with a few outs still. You're going to take starters out. But if you can get your starters to go the distance, like Justin Verlander did in Game 2, and still win the game, as the Astros did with a Carlos Correa walk-off hit, that's crucial going forward. Now after those two games, which were very exciting, the Yankees took Game 3, 8-1. to one. The bats came out a lot with two three-run homers from Todd Frazier and Aaron Judge. And right now, of course, this game will be over probably by the time this comes out. But right now, the Yankees lead the Astros 6-4 to four in the bottom of the eighth inning. And they have scored two runs in the seventh and four runs in the eighth to take the lead. The Yankees can tie this series. I don't think that'll change much. Although the Yankees having Game 5 in their place will significantly help them. But nonetheless, I think the Astros have too much talent and too much star power in their pitching to really let the Yankees fully get back in the series. But I'm excited to see how the the young guys keep producing for the Astros, Correa, Altuve, Springer, Bregman, and they have the youth, and they've got the bats, and they've got the arms to get to the World Series. And who will they face? Well, let's take a look at the NLDS, what's going on there. The Dodgers taking on the Cubs. The Dodgers took Game 1, 5-2, to two. And with Kershaw, Clayton Kershaw, actually getting run support during the playoffs, which is pretty rare for him, he gave up a two-run homer that put the Cubs in the lead to Albert Almora. But nonetheless, the Dodgers came back and won the ball game, 5-2. And the Dodgers took game 2-4-1. The Dodgers' bullpen, who has been a, a big story this year, as contrary to the Dodgers' bullpen performances in the past playoffs, they no-hit the Cubs over four innings after Rich Hill went five innings of one-run ball. And Justin Turner hit a walk-off homer that mirrored the 1988-99-98 homer by Kirk Gibson in the World Series. So we'll see if the Dodgers can replicate that performance from decades ago. And I think they can, honestly, this year. I was kind of not sure about them going in because they've struggled in the playoffs, but they've been able to provide enough run support for their pitchers, and their pitchers have been pretty lights out so far. As far as an Astros, potential Astros-Dodgers World Series, I depends on who's going in, but I would have to take the Astros in that just because of their starting pitching, although it would be a really tight series probably in six or seven games. So we'll keep you updated on the MLB postseason as we move on, and we'll see how everything plays out. Next, a crazy weekend in college football, week seven. Let's go look at the scores. Oh, and by the way, we're just a few weeks away from the uh, initial release of the college football playoff standings, so of course we'll update those when they come out. But anyway, here we go. 
Number six, TCU beat Kansas State 26-6. Number 10, Auburn was defeated by LSU 27-23. And this is kind of a shocker as Auburn falls after giving up a 20-point lead. And LSU appears to be back after their shocking loss to Troy as they've defeated two ranked teams in a row, SET teams in a row, Florida and ranked Auburn. Anyway, number 7, Wisconsin beat Purdue 17-9. Number 11, Miami escaped a matchup with Georgia Tech 25-24. Number 1, Alabama keeps rolling 41-9. Number 4, Georgia does as well 53-28. Number 9, Ohio State crushes Nebraska 56-14. Number 13, USC escapes Utah 28-27. to And number, nope, that's all for this weekend. So let's get into the big games. Friday night upsets. Friday the 13th upsets. Syracuse, unranked Syracuse, beat number two Clemson 27-24. to And this is the most points Clemson has given up all season. They've looked dominant. I don't think anyone saw this loss coming. Syracuse quarterback Eric Dungy, Threw for 300 or had 339 total yards of offense and threw three touchdowns, and that includes blown coverages, missed tackles, and these led to some big plays from the Syracuse offense and the three total touchdowns. Sorry, not three passing touchdowns, and this leads to Clemson's 11-game win streak being snapped. They were on a roll. They beat Alabama in the national championship game. They were cruising through this year. They didn't really have any close calls, even to ranked teams like Virginia Tech. This is their largest upset loss in the last 40 seasons. They were 23.5-point favorites. Just adds to how shocking this loss was. Clemson quarterback Kelly Bryant left the game in the second quarter with a concussion, and that might be the biggest story of the weekend. He was already suffering through an ankle ankle injury, and he was kind of hobbled throughout the game. So we could see that before leading up to the concussion itself. And although he's progressing... The other QBs they have are a redshirt freshman and a freshman. So you're, if you miss him, you're going to lack that leadership you can get from QB who's sat behind Deshaun Watson and gained those qualities. Now, as far as Clemson, they still have a shot at the playoff, of course, because Clemson made the national championship the last two years, and they did make the playoff last year even with one loss, and that was a conference loss to Pitt at home, and this is a conference loss on the road. So it's a little it's a little different. But nonetheless, especially with all the teams that lost this week, Clemson for sure still has a shot at the playoff, and they only fell to number seven in the most recent AP rankings. So they, all they need is a few more losses. One of them, California, beat number eight Washington State 37 to 3 in Pac-12 after dark, my favorite Pac-12, my favorite college football time of day. Luke Falk's offense, a Heisman candidate, Luke Falk. They were shut down the entire game. They had only they were, they had seven turnovers and five interceptions, I believe. Some of those were unlucky, but still, seven turnovers. You can't win with seven turnovers. So now Washington State's probably out of the playoff. There's a quality win over USC that might be keeping them in the hunt, but they still have to face Stanford, Utah, and Washington. So they've got a pretty tough in-conference schedule, plus even a possible conference championship game would be a tough road ahead for them. But of course, while college football is not just about the playoff, they still have New Year's Six Bowls that they can probably get, especially if they win their conference. The season's not over for the, for the uh, what are they called? I forgot, the Washington State Cougars. I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if there are no undefeated teams before the playoff, after these losses and the one I'm about to talk about, because Alabama and Georgia, the two SEC teams that have been cruising, they both still have Auburn on the road. And some of the most recent times they went to Auburn were the kick six, 
when Auburn scored a touchdown. Number four Auburn beat number one Alabama at Auburn. And also the miracle at Jordan-Hare, where Auburn beat a ranked Georgia team the week after that. So we've seen this kind of progression of schedule before, and it didn't end up well for either of the other SEC powers. Penn State, who moved up to number two this week, who have been pretty dominant throughout, still have Michigan, Ohio State, and Michigan State back-to-back-to-back on their schedule. So again, another gauntlet of conference games for a team that looks to be in prime position for the playoff after barely missing out last year. And as far as the Pac-12, where Washington State resides, it's always a chaotic conference, especially after dark, as evidenced by Arizona beating number 5 Washington 13-7. We're going to transfer over to that game. Washington was shut out after three quarters in this game, and that's for the first time since 2010. And Washington has averaged 43 points a game and 432 yards per game in their first six games, and they only had 230 total yards and seven points. That shows how Arizona State's defense was able to rise up to the task at home. Arizona State was lucky as well in this game, as Washington missed two field goals inside of 25 yards, and if you do the math real quick, that would have tied the game. And Pac-12 now is the only conference without an undefeated team. So the winner of that conference, whether it be Washington, USC, uh, Washington State, the winner's going to need help getting into the playoff. Whether that be a loss from a team like Alabama or Penn State, which I'm predicting Penn State's going to lose at some point, or another team from a power conference like, say, Miami. So, wow, what a crazy week of upsets. Number two loss, number five loss, number eight loss, and number 10 loss, number 11, 12, and 13, and seven barely escaped with Michigan with the win in overtime. So here we go into the main part of the college football season where everyone looks to. We're going to go who's in, who's out, who's going to be in, who's going to be out. So much fun. Okay, now a short recap of the NFL Week 6. Not much to talk about this week except for the Vikings beat the Packers 23-10. But more importantly, Aaron Rodgers suffered a broken collarbone on a hit by Harrison Smith in the first half. And he could miss the rest of the season. We're not sure yet, but he will have surgery, so there is a high possibility he will miss the regular season. And this sucks for the Packers, because they've been significantly hurt by injuries this year. Their starting running back, Ty Montgomery, was out for a few weeks, even though that led to the emergence of Aaron Jones. Now that Ty Montgomery's coming back, we're going to have to readjust him into the offense, and Jones wasn't the same this week. He only had 41 yards after having a few touchdowns a game before. And with this loss... This opens the door for the Vikings or the Lions to win the division this year and get rid of the stronghold the Packers have had on the NFC North. As in this game, even though he threw one touchdown pass, Nick Hunt, or Brett Hundley, threw three interceptions in this game. So he'll have to readjust to the offense. It'll be weird seeing a Packers quarterback that's not Aaron Rodgers or Brett Favre. They've actually only had six total quarterbacks since 1992, which is an NFL low. And the Vikings, I really like them. They're emerging as a powerhouse in the NFC, even without their rookie Dalvin Cook, who has been getting significant touchdowns and yards. Jarek McKinnon had 99 total yards and two total touchdowns. And that combined with the power of Latavius Murray, that, that dual backfield where they're splitting carries, but McKinnon's starting to emerge. We're going to see that going forward. And they've got receivers too. Adam Thielen had 97 reception yards, and maybe their number one wideout, Stephon Diggs, was out this week. So we haven't even seen the best of the Vikings. Or maybe we have with Dalvin Cook, but as far as the Vikings receiving core, we haven't seen the best of them. 
And the other big game this week, the Steelers beat the Chiefs 19-13 to as the Chiefs couldn't stop Le'Veon Bell, who had 32 carries, 179 yards, and one touchdown. And the Steelers were also fortunate in this game from a bad snap leading to a safety by the Chiefs and also a deflected pass that went into the hands of Antonio Brown to seal the game. Pittsburgh, they look good. They've recovered from the Jaguars' loss last year, or last game. And they've kind of erased those doubts that Ben Roethlisberger can't perform anymore. And we're starting to see a pattern for them that we kind of knew going in. But still, it's hand the ball to Le'Veon Bell. If you do it a bajillion times, you're going to win. And they return to the top of the AFC North where they're looking pretty as the Ravens, their second place opponent, struggled against the Bears. They didn't have any offensive touchdowns in that game. The Chiefs, meanwhile, are no longer undefeated at 5-1. Their big play guys got bottled up in this game as Kareem Hunt had only 21 rush yards and no touchdowns, and Tyreek Hill only had 34 yards, and they were held to only 13 points at home and 251 total yards. So this loss at home is a little more significant than maybe one on the road because it kind of breaks that spell of invincibility that the squad had around them. Plus, they have divisional matchups next at the Raiders and uh, versus the Broncos. So those will be tough matchups, especially in Mile High and in the environment of the Black Hole. So the Chiefs, I think they are still in prime position. They might even still be the favorite to win the Super Bowl, but their schedule next is going to make it tough on them. So now we actually have a ton of fan questions this week. So why don't we get right into it? So this is from Michael. He said, should the Packers sign Colin Kaepernick? I'm going to say no because everyone's jumping to that conclusion because Colin Kaepernick was a Packers fan growing up. He's from Wisconsin, and he needs a job right now, and this seems like a perfect fit. But the Packers' offense really isn't built for a running quarterback for the last decades or so. Like, Brett Favre wasn't a huge running threat. Aaron Rodgers, he's nimble, but he's not a guy you're going to run design runs for. And a lot of their offense, especially with the talent they have out wide with Jordy Nelson, Devontae Adams... A lot of it is built on throwing downfield, throwing accurate downfield passes, which Kaepernick, when he was on the Niners, he struggled with that. He, he mostly made it in the league with his legs and with his, not for his pocket presence and for his pinpoint accuracy. So I think we would see, I don't think the Packers should sign Kaepernick. I think we should wait for a better fit. Jason asks, what are your thoughts about C.J. Beathard being the starting QB for the 49ers? I love this move. Because if you're going to be, if you're a team like the Niners, who is, even though they're 0-6, they've actually set an NFL record, not a good one, for most consecutive losses by three points or fewer at five consecutive games. So it's really clear that they have trouble, and this game too, even after C.J. Beathard came in, but he wasn't in the whole game, so maybe if they've gotten off to a better start, they wouldn't have had this issue, but they have trouble in the clutch. And in order to do that, you kind of need a jump start at a major skill position, like quarterback or running back or wide receiver. And I know it's mostly offense, but hey, offense wins you games, even if defense wins you championships. And if you're going to make a change at quarterback, or if you want a good quarterback, a 32-year-old unproven veteran with a 16-25 and record isn't going to make your team a contender all of a sudden. And now Evan says, I want to hear your way-too-early playoff picture in the NBA. Okay, I actually thought about this beforehand. I did some preparation. Okay, let's go. The West, I've got the Warriors as the first seed, the Thunder as the second seed, Rockets third, Clippers fourth, Spurs fifth, Blazers sixth, Timberwolves seventh, Nuggets eighth. And in the East, we actually just saw Gordon Hayward go down. Don't know the extent of that injury. 
But if, if that injury isn't too serious and doesn't take him out the whole year, we're going to go Celtics, Cavs, Raptors, Bucks, Wizards, Wizards, Heat, Pistons, and Hornets. I really like the young guys you can see from this list. I've got the Timberwolves in there. I like Cat. I like Jimmy Butler as to provide a little more experience. As for the Nuggets, I like Jokic a lot. He's a really versatile big man that's going to flourish now, especially without having Yusuf Nurkic for full season. And as far as the Pistons and the Hornets and the Heat, those were teams that were just on the edge of making the Eastern Conference playoffs last year. And with the Pacers losing Paul George and the Bulls losing some of their big players like Jimmy Butler, I think we're going to see those teams finally make a push in. And the Heat, they actually finished 30-11 and 11 in the second half last year. So I like them going into the season. And finally, Mitchell asks, is Navarro Bowman going to save the Raiders' season? Well, if you didn't know, he was Navarro Bowman, a middle linebacker, was released from the Niners this week after he requested to be released because, you know, the team's 0-6. And he is now a Oakland Raider. And I don't think he's going to save their season. I think that's a bit of an exaggeration, over-exaggeration. But he will help by providing leadership on the defensive side. But if you look at the Raiders' results, their struggles are on the offensive side of the ball. They've been averaging scores in like the teens in their four recent losses. So you're going to have to see uh, Derek Carr coming back, getting reintegrated in the offense, clicking with Amari Cooper again, and Marshawn Lynch really just getting more holes to run through is what we're going to have to see to get the Raiders to have their season saved. But of course, they're only 2-4. and four. It's way too early to overreact to things, but we're starting to get into the meat of the NFL season. So with those out of the way, let's move over to the quick take. And this is a kind of a quick take, but this is something that literally just happened, so I want to talk about it, and I kind of referenced it a little bit earlier. But Gordon Hayward suffered an apparent leg injury versus the Cavaliers, and he was stretchered off the court. According to the Washington Post, Tim Bontemps, Hayward's foot looked to be at a 90-degree angle from his ankle from his leg. That sounds gruesome, and it looks like something is broken or, or torn, or you're gonna, you might have to have surgery on it if it's that bad. And players like Paul George have been sending out prayers on Twitter. Wow, if you lose Gordon Hayward, you're still going to have the star power on the Celtics from Kyrie Irving, but you're not going to have that superstar you really need to compete in the East. The Celtic or the Cavs got better adding Isaiah Thomas, and if you just added Kyrie Irving, that's not enough. You're going to need a Gordon Hayward to stretch the floor and make those threes when he's open, kind of like the Cavaliers have with all those premier three-point shooters. Wow, this is pretty shocking. Just six minutes into the six minutes into the game, man. That's all that's all you need. But nonetheless, I think if Hayward is out for the year, the Celtics obviously drop to the number two seed in the Eastern Conference and I guess could be title title contenders just based on Kyrie Irving's will alone and Al Horford's inside presence. But nonetheless, here we go. We've got the NBA season already underway. Hopefully no more injuries happen and we can have a good season. So thank you for listening to The Wong Takes. Don't forget to send questions to the email, thewongtakes at gmail.com. You can also do that via the website, thewongtakes.wixsite.com slash thewongtakes. Or you can check out the Patreon to get exclusive things like an outline of the episode or you can get your name shouted out on the podcast. Go to patreon.com slash thewongtakes, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week.